You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. Today we hear from Doug Abiji from the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. We learn about California water rights and what's at stake. Hi, I'm Doug Obiji. I'm a senior attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, and I work on protecting California's rivers and fisheries from excessive water diversions. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and what you think the public needs to know about water laws in California today? Absolutely. Everyone who lives in California has some sense that our water supply is variable and that we have frequent droughts and don't necessarily have as much water as we want. And in some years we have too much water. But I think the vast majority of us don't really have a great conception of where our water comes from. For most of us, we turn on the tap and clean water comes out. For far too many Californians, as many as a million, that's simply not true. They turn on their taps and they either get dirty water or no water. But for the vast majority of us, there's a big black box between the rain and snow falling and then water coming out of our taps. And part of my job is working within that big black box because that black box is really how much water we leave for fish and wildlife and leave in our rivers and how much water we store and divert and take out of our rivers. I think we all are rather shocked to see just how much water we're diverting from California's rivers each year. And it's not surprising that as a result, we're seeing our native fish populations collapse and the fishing jobs and tribal communities that depend on them really hurting and facing really bleak futures. And that's because the water that all of us drink, the water that we use to irrigate millions of acres of agricultural lands, the vast majority of that is either taken from our rivers or it's pumped from deep underground from groundwater. And both of those are finite supplies with virtually unlimited demand. And that has created a a rather unequal and inequitable system of water policy in California. At NRDC, we work to rebalance how much water is left in our rivers and how much is diverted, both through litigation and lobbying and regulations to protect the environment, as well as supporting water bonds and legislation to invest in sustainable local water supply projects like groundwater recharge projects, stormwater capture, wastewater recycling, and especially improving efficiency on our farms and in our cities so that the economy can thrive while we take less water from the environment. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of what my work is. Some days it's being in court fighting over how much water we leave for salmon or how much water we have to leave behind Shasta Dam to make sure that we don't kill the vast majority of the salmon from lethal water temperatures. Other days, I'm speaking at a meeting of the board of directors of the Metropolitan Water District about a new storage project or supporting their wastewater recycling project. Some days, it's working on technical work, analyzing the environmental review of the Sites Reservoir Project, for instance. And then I get to do what I consider to be the fun stuff, which is talking with scientists about what our fish and wildlife need to thrive, and then talking with fishermen and tribes and other folks on the ground to get a better sense of how they're affected and the solutions that they need for their communities. That sounds like you have your hands pretty full. (laughs) (laughs) There's always something interesting going on. And part of the challenge with water is that we have a very complicated system to move water around But we've also used a lot of jargon and a lot of acronyms. And we've, you know, as a society, we've made water policy more complicated than it really is. And that has made it harder for the public to engage on these issues because it gets cloaked in this kind of mythical sense that it's too complicated. And at its heart, it's really simple. How much water are we diverting from our rivers and how much are we leaving for fish and wildlife? But that complexity allows people to avoid asking for answers to tough questions like, why does Stuart Resnick control more water than the entire city of L.A. uses in a year? Why does a million people in California not have safe drinking water? And all too often, 
people get patted on the heads for asking those questions as though they're naive rather than cutting through the clutter to get to the heart of the matter. So who in California does have senior water rights and how did they get them and how are they used? So water rights are an invention of California law and really throughout the Western United States. You know, when the United States was founded, we adopted the common law of England and under common law, everyone who lives next to a river has a shared right to use the river and to divert water from the river. But in England and in much of the eastern United States, at least in the past, you haven't had to irrigate because you get rainfall throughout the year. And when settlers came out west, at least the white colonizing settlers came out west, they saw a very different landscape from what they had come from on the east coast or from England. And it was a very dry and arid landscape, particularly in the summer months. When they first came here, we had groundwater bubbling up to the surface because we had not yet depleted those groundwater reserves and our rivers were running brim to brim. But they saw the need to move water from where it was located to the places where people were starting to settle. And so they created this doctrine known as appropriative rights, also known as first in time, first in right. And what it meant was once this doctrine was established, instead of everyone having a shared right to use water on properties next to the river, now people could just go and tack a sign up to a tree and just start digging a ditch and diverting water. And they had created a right to appropriate or take that water from the river and move it miles, if not hundreds of miles away. And this system existed up until 1914. Prior to that year in California, there was no state registry for water rights. There was no state application or permit process. You simply gave notice to your neighbors by posting something on a tree and start taking the water. In 1914, the state passed the Water Commission Act, and that for the first time required people who wanted a water right to the state to apply to the state for that right. And it was, I think, in part a recognition that water was becoming more scarce even then. And so we've kind of divided water rights, not just between appropriative and riparian rights, but between the water rights that predate 1914, which are known as senior water rights or pre-1914 water rights, and post-1914 water rights or appropriative water rights. And even today, the State Water Board, which is the state agency charged with managing and administering water rights, has far less authority over those pre-1914 water rights than they do over other water rights. So for instance, the pre-1914 water rights holders, which include places like the city of San Francisco, Pacific Gas and Electric, they don't have to pay water rights fees to the state water board, even though the water board administers the water rights program and enforces the water rights priority system on their behalf. And similarly, the board doesn't have authority over permitting or of those pre-1914 water rights, but they do have the authority to curtail them and to prevent unreasonable use. And we've seen that in recent years as the droughts have gotten more severe with climate change. It does mean that on some rivers, you know, on the Tuolumne River, for instance, San Francisco has senior water rights or pre-1914 water rights, but they're actually third in line for water because there are two irrigation districts on the river that got water rights before San Francisco did. And so in general, when you have that situation, it means in our water rights system, it is something of a winner-take-all system as opposed to the riparian shared rights under appropriative rights the person who's most senior, who has the oldest water rights, gets to satisfy their water rights completely before the next person in line gets a single drop. And so if you're last in line for water under our water rights priority system, you probably only get water in really wet years. And in the drier years, the more senior folks get it. It is fundamentally a, a pretty inequitable system because at that time, prior to 1914 and even thereafter, there were many people in California who were not allowed to own property or own water rights. And we had you know, systematically removed Native American peoples from the land 
and we ushered in this new era of new colonists taking over these water rights. And now they have these water rights that have left many people without rights and far too many people in California without even adequate, safe and affordable drinking water. So there's basically pre-1914, and those are senior water rights. And then anything after that is appropriative. Is that right? Yeah. And the seniors are also types of appropriative rights, but all too often they're treated as though they're above the law, even though the state constitution says all water rights are subject to reasonable use. And in fact, in 1928, the voters adopted this amendment to the constitution requiring that all water rights be subject to reasonable use and to prevent waste precisely to avoid some people being able to really hoard water and to be exempt from the law. Since 1928, when we adopted Article 10, Section 2 of the state constitution, the unreasonable use requirement, all too often, the state has not done enough to regulate its pre-1914 water rights. And as a result, everyone else suffers while they've made pretty impressive profits over the years. I hear the term use it or lose it. So is that kind of play into what you're talking about? It used to much more than it does today. So historically and under current law, because water is so valuable and so scarce, the state law has required that you use the water beneficially or you lose that right. If you don't use your water for a beneficial use, like irrigation or drinking water or protecting fish and wildlife, then after five years of not using that right, you lose it. But the doctrine has been significantly weakened in recent years and recent decades, I should say, because what began as a very strict rule has now allowed for a lot of exceptions. So for instance, if you don't use all of your water right because you're conserving water, state law says you don't lose that right. Or if you decide to transfer and sell some of that water to another user of water, you don't lose the right. And so there have been very few actual forfeitures of water rights in recent years. And particularly the doctrine of use it or lose it because you can transfer water, because you conserve water and not lose your right, it really is not a very strong check on water rights. But it was intended to prevent the hoarding of water rights because with a limited supply and unlimited demand, particularly in these drier years, if you could just hold on to the right and not use it and prevent others from using it, you could quickly increase the cost of water and, you know, with enough people could potentially monopolize the system. So why are the water rights over allocated? Can we just revoke them if they're being abused? I read that it's way over allocated more water than we even have. That's right. There are numerous studies that have found that the state has given away far more water rights than there is water in an average year potentially five to 10 more times water rights than there is water in an average year, let alone in a dry year like this, when there's far less water to go around. Now, to some extent, we have to recognize that water rights can be granted for different purposes in California. So you could have a water right that allows you to store water briefly and produce hydropower, for instance, like a right held by PG&E, but they don't actually have a right to divert the water out of the system. You can have a river where you have more than 100% of the water allocated for water rights because of these different beneficial uses. But that said, even with that caveat, we know that we have issued far more water rights than there is real water for water rights for diversion. But part of the problem is that we don't know just how much water rights there are because those pre-1914 water rights, those senior water rights, they don't actually necessarily have a set amount or that amount of the water right could be disputed because there isn't a formal adjudication or ruling by the state or a court saying just how much that right encompasses. And so you have a lot of uncertainty about how much water some of these big irrigation districts are diverting or how much they're allowed to divert because you don't know how much is under the water right. And then this issue is compounded because 
for many decades up until I think around the 1970s, leaving water in a stream wasn't even considered a beneficial use. And so you can't apply for a water right to protect the environment. You can transfer an existing right to protect the environment, but to leave water in the river requires the state water board to set minimum in-stream flows that would then limit water diversions. And all too often the board doesn't do that. So we have, we've over-allocated the water rights and we've under-allocated the water that the environment, that our salmon runs, that our rivers need to remain healthy. And that has led to the catastrophe facing our native fish and wildlife and the people who depend on them. Unfortunately, we can't just simply revoke water rights because they are a type of property right, although they, they are very different from land or real property because, for instance, one year there may not be any water to satisfy your right because of a drought. So they are different, but they are a type of property right. And so what happens when there is a shortage, like you see this year and almost certainly next year, is that the state has to curtail water rights, has to tell users that they cannot divert water because they're either diverting water that belongs to somebody else or diverting water that is required to protect the environment. And so you've seen the state in the last year adopt regulations to curtail water diversions on Scott and Shasta rivers to protect coho and Chinook salmon, for instance, after numerous petitions by a number of tribes. And similarly, we've seen the board adopt regulations requiring curtailments of pre-1914 water rights holders on Mill and Deer Creek to protect Chinook salmon. Because if you didn't have those regulations and those curtailment orders, the water diversions could literally dry up the river and divert every single drop on both of those, both Mill and Deer Creek and on the Scott Chester rivers. And so regulation of water rights benefits not just the environment, but it also benefits the more senior water rights holders, especially if they're downstream, because if you're downstream from people who are diverting water, the only way to make sure you get your water flowing down the river to your point of diversion is that other people upstream who don't have the right to take that water have to be curtailed. And so we can't just simply take away those water rights, but what we need is a system that enforces the water rights system in a fair and equitable and timely manner. And right now, our water rights system is proving that it's just not up to the task. We don't have great information on who's diverting how much water at any particular time. And the state has lacked the political will to curtail water diversions to protect salmon and other fish and wildlife. The industrial agribusiness lobby is pretty powerful in this state. And so what we've seen over the last several decades is billions of dollars in profit for ag and our salmon populations and native fish populations continuing to dwindle and disappear. On that note, have the tribal rights and treaties regarding water rights been honored in California and I guess in the West in general? I don't think so. Now, I'm not an expert on tribal water rights, but I'm pretty confident that tribal water rights are recognized in the breach far more than they're recognized in actual practice. And so on the Klamath system, for instance, we've had adjudications of water rights going back to the 1970s and 80s, and the courts have held that the tribes hold the most senior water rights on the Klamath. But that hasn't been enforced because the adjudication is still ongoing. On the Colorado River, we had a court decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals earlier this year finding that the Department of Interior had breached its obligations to many Native American tribes along the Colorado River because it was not protecting their water rights. When tribal reservations were created, all too often, they did not include explicit protections for water rights necessary for those reservations or for the tribal practices like fishing and hunting that were supposed to be protected under treaties between these nations and the United States. And so the Supreme Court, more than a century ago, created what's known as the Winters Doctrine, which is this idea that when Congress created tribal reservations or tribal treaties, there were water rights associated with those treaties that were implicit in order to fulfill the promises 
that were made in those treaties. But again, that doesn't protect tribes that are not federally recognized, like the Winnem and Wintu tribe in Northern California. And all too often, those tribal water rights that are inferred under the treaties simply aren't being enforced and recognized. So I'm also wondering, how is groundwater monitored and protected in California? Do people need water rights to drill for water? So groundwater has a separate legal regime that governs it. When California was first created as a state, we treated groundwater and surface water as very different. I would speculate that part of the reason for that is because the groundwater is out of sight. And so it's just sort of assumed to be abundant. You know, you have a legal regime for surface water rights for diversions from lakes and rivers, where you have both appropriative and riparian rights. You have a similar regime for groundwater rights, except there is no state permitting regime. And so you have both the equivalent of riparian rights are known as correlative rights to groundwater, which means that you have a right to use a reasonable amount and a shared amount of the water underlying your property with your neighbors for using that on the property. But that only applies for pumping groundwater to use on your own property and pumping it you know, directly from the ground below you. If you wanted to pump groundwater and then use it on a different property or sell it, then you would have the equivalent of appropriative water rights. But we don't have a state regulatory regime. And prior to the enactment of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act during the last drought, California was the last state in the nation to have an effective groundwater management regime on the state level. Prior to that time, individual counties could set up their own permitting scheme for groundwater and could set limits. But the economic incentives had always been or had largely been to allow people to continue to exploit and pump groundwater. And what we've seen since the 1920s, at least 1930s, is a dramatic lowering of groundwater levels, particularly in the San Joaquin Valley. So, you know, historically, when people, when white settlers first came to the state, they came to find what were known as artesian wells, where the groundwater was so close to the surface that it was effectively bubbling up through the ground. And over the last century plus, we have mined the groundwater and have basically lowered the groundwater levels by tens or hundreds or even more feet, which makes pumping more expensive and which is depleting basically a finite resource. We are pumping more water out of the ground than is naturally being replaced through infiltration from rain and snow melting into the ground and or from direct recharge, intentional recharge projects where we're pumping water back into the ground. And so we've been basically stealing our children's inheritance in terms of groundwater in order to create this industrial agricultural economy throughout the San Joaquin Valley. And all too often, there have not been effective checks on groundwater pumping, not just to harm other pumpers, you know, other agricultural pumpers, but particularly to prevent shallow groundwater wells that are used typically for domestic purposes from being dried up. And so what we saw during the last drought before the passage of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was that big hedge funds and other companies were coming in, buying land that had never been irrigated before, planting almonds or other orchard crops that had no surface water rights, and just drilling very deep wells to get to groundwater and suddenly pumping groundwater. And in some of these places, within days, the community of largely disadvantaged and poor people of color suddenly found that their wells, which were shallow, had completely dried up and they turned on their taps and no water came out. Meanwhile, there's this huge industrial orchard across the street that's pumping gazillions of uh, gallons of groundwater every day. And that's a big reason why the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was passed. Farmers saw that people were coming in and that it was a literal race to the bottom and that they were getting hurt. 
poor communities in the Central Valley, disadvantaged communities, saw that their wells were drying up as a result of the unsustainable groundwater pumping. And it was enough to get the state to pass this law. But the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act really leaves a lot of opportunities for mischief over the next 15 to 20 years. And the full requirements don't come into effect for at least a decade or two. And so we still see unsustainable groundwater pumping happening throughout the San Joaquin Valley in particular. But we're also seeing it in the Sacramento Valley, where you're starting to see more areas showing groundwater depletion as the climate changes, as surface water becomes less available, as people convert to more almonds and walnuts and permanent crops in Northern California. And in Southern California, many of these basins have been formally adjudicated by the courts, so there are strict limits on pumping. For surface water and groundwater, adjudicated means that a court determines the rights of all the landowners and other claimants, defining how much water each party is entitled to. And this can take years. You know, in theory, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act will set up similar regimes that are governed by the local landowners and local water districts to limit pumping. But the question is how much more damage will be done before those limits really come into effect. Yeah, it seems like there is maybe some issues with people reporting what they're pumping. Yes. In fact, if I remember correctly, that the people are generally required to submit to the county information about wells that they're drilling to make sure that they're not leaking and that they're drilled properly. But that information on how much people are pumping, where their wells are located, is often treated as confidential information that's exempt from the Public Records Act. And so it makes it very difficult for the public to understand what's happening. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And this is all over the state, probably. Yes. And in the state where, you know, we have Wi-Fi-enabled devices that will communicate across the planet in seconds or milliseconds, you know, we're still relying on paper submissions regarding water diversions that are several years old or, you know, no public reporting of how much groundwater is being pumped. Again, you know, I think part of the strategy has been to make water policy inaccessible by making it seem more complicated than it appears. And part of it is been by keeping information from the public. You know, it's hard to know. The state water board, for instance, doesn't announce every year how much water was diverted from the Bay Delta and how much went to the environment. They don't actually provide that information to the public. And I think the same is true on the Tuolumne River, where San Francisco and these irrigation districts, on average, divert 80 plus percent of the water and in dry years can divert 90 percent or more of the water, leaving only a trickle for the river. But again, that information doesn't get out to the public. And instead, that's just in that big black box between the rainfall that falls on the state and the water coming out of your tap. Wow. I didn't know that they didn't report any of that. Thanks for mentioning that. For sure. And that's you know part of the reason why I like doing these kinds of interviews is that I think that the public really does care. And I think that they are alarmed. And I think that when they do find out just how extreme some of these unsustainable water diversions are and how poorly we've treated our rivers and how badly we've screwed them up. And so it is kind of the old knowledge is power idea that the more information that we can provide to the public about where the water is going, who's using it, how much is being diverted, the better all of us are to be able to advocate for change. Where is the water going? I know there's the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project, and one is federal and one is state-owned. But yeah, who are the main players in that? And maybe if you can break all that down in a nutshell. I know it's really complicated. So to begin with, the Bay Delta watershed, which includes the Sacramento River coming from the north, flowing into the Delta and then to San Francisco Bay, And then the San Joaquin River and its tributaries flowing from the south up into the delta and into the bay, that watershed covers almost 40% of the state's landmass. And that is the biggest part of California's water supply system. Not only because it covers a large part of the landmass, it also covers 
a lot of the big mountains where we get snowfall and we get runoff into these big rivers. And then it includes our two massive water projects, the Federal Central Valley Project and the state of California State Water Project. The Central Valley Project was built first. It includes Shasta Dam on the Sacramento River, Folsom Dam on the American River. It includes a large pumping plant in the Delta, the Delta Mendota Canal that moves water from the Delta down to the San Joaquin Valley. And the Central Valley Project has contracts for 10 or 11 million acre feet of water per year for its contractors. The biggest group of contractors are known as the Sacramento River Settlement Contractors. They are a group of contractors that claim to have senior water rights on the Sacramento River, and they settled their claims for water rights for a sweetheart deal with the Bureau of Reclamation that gives them even more water than they would have under their water rights in many years. And so they have contracts for more than 2 million acre feet a year and historically have been predominantly rice growers, rice growing, but have started to have more and more permanent crops, almond trees, walnuts, other orchards growing there because of the profit motive. The largest irrigation district that is a contractor of the Central Valley Project is the Westlands Water District, which is basically the size of the state of Rhode Island. They are some of the last people in line for water from the Central Valley Project because they were added to the system later, but they have some of the biggest lobbying power and political influence. And so Westlands has been a force for decades in advocating to weaken environmental protections, to take more water or ag from the environment, and to push for the extinction of our native fish and wildlife. About three quarters of the water from the Central Valley Project on average goes to irrigated agriculture. There are some urban contractors. The Santa Clara Valley Water District in San Jose is the largest urban contractor, I believe. And then you also have urban or municipal and industrial contractors along the American River and elsewhere. The State Water Project came after the Central Valley Project. And the State Water Project has its Oroville Dam as its main reservoir on the Feather River. It has a humongous pumping plant in the Delta. Together, the two projects, the CVP and SWP, can pump 15,000 cubic feet per second out of the Delta at maximum pumping level. That's the equivalent of, think about 15,000 basketballs filled with water every second. They're not normally allowed to pump at that rate, almost never, but they have this tremendous capacity to move water. The State Water Project is predominantly urban or municipal and industrial contractors. So most of the water is going to cities, about a quarter to a third goes to ag. The largest agricultural contractors are the Kern County Water Agency and its member agencies down near Bakersfield. The largest urban contractor is the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which is the wholesaler for all of Southern California, the coastal South Coast region, stretching from like Ventura, Santa Barbara, all the way down to San Diego. And they have a contract for about 2 million acre feet a year, almost half the yield of the state water project. So in addition to the two big projects, you also have a number of other water rights holders and irrigation districts that hold water rights in the Bay Delta. So it's not just the two projects. You have, for instance, on the Yuba River, you have uh, the Yuba County Water Agency diverts water out of that system. On the Tuolumne River, as I think I mentioned before, you have San Francisco and two irrigation districts that divert unsustainable amounts of water from the river. You have irrigation districts on the Stanislaus, some of which are CVP contractors. You've got irrigation districts on the Merced River that are not associated with either project. And so taken together, what we see is that in most years, more than half of the water and often 60% or more of the water, particularly in the winter and spring months when we get most of the rainfall and precipitation and runoff that our fish and wildlife natively adapted to, we see that 50 or 60% of the water is diverted or stored. And so the environment on average is getting less than half of the water that would occur naturally. And in dry years, it's often even more extreme. So for instance, this year, just a quick note for our listeners, this interview was recorded in late 2021. 
the state and federal water projects violated their water quality standards in the Delta by diverting more water and not meeting the amount of water that's supposed to flow through the Delta to protect salmon and long fence melt and other species. And we saw that about around 80% of the water went to ag this year from the two projects. And we saw more than 50% of the water diverted out of the system, leaving our fish and wildlife high and dry in many cases. So we've seen this year, for instance, those excessive water deliveries, particularly for the Sacramento River settlement contractors, caused water temperatures below Shasta Dam to greatly exceed the temperatures necessary for salmon to successfully spawn. And so the Federal National National Marine Fisheries Service estimates that 75% of the endangered winter run salmon were killed just by lethal water temperatures. And we're still waiting for the final numbers, but I anticipate when you add in the other sources of mortality, both natural and man-made, predation, disease, low flows because of these diversions, only about 2% of the endangered winter run salmon in this in the Sacramento River actually survived the first couple months of their lives just to make it down to Red Bluff Diversion Dam. And unfortunately, we see similar results for fall run Chinook salmon, which are the backbone of the state's salmon fishery in the Central Valley, where in the last drought, we saw between 1% and 2% of those eggs actually survived the first few months. Historically, the Central Valley had 1 to 2 million salmon coming back each year. We had canneries up in Fresno and all along these rivers. You know, you have old timers, even in the 40s and 50s, talking about the sound of the spawning salmon being so loud that it would keep people up at night and people felt like they could walk across the backs of salmon and not even get their feet wet to cross the San Joaquin River. And then the Central Valley Project, the Bureau of Reclamation, built Friant Dam and completely diverted every drop from the river and the salmon were gone. And that is an extreme case, but it is, in a sense, the history of California water. We see all too often that the forces that want to divert ever more amounts of water have gotten the upper hand and our native fish and wildlife have been slowly strangled out of existence. That is really amazing. I mean, I've been to Fresno in the summer and it's like a dust bowl over there. And so to imagine the salmon keeping people up at night. It is. So NRDC filed suit in, I think, 1988. And we ultimately reached a settlement agreement in 2006 to restore flows to the San Joaquin River, ending up until that time from like the 1950s till 2009. There were about 60 miles of the San Joaquin River, which is California's second longest river that were bone dry almost every year. And unfortunately, the settlement agreement has been beset by challenges, a lot of people trying to prevent the settlement from being effective. But we have started to restore salmon and we are restoring flows in most years. And we are at least having a connected river in most years, even if the vast majority of the water is still diverted. But that was the mindset. The mindset was to completely dry up California's second longest river to extirpate, I think in the one of the last years before the dam was constructed, 50,000 spring run salmon came back to spawn. And we just wiped it out because that was seen as quote unquote progress. And part of what we do at NRDC is to try to restore more balance working with tribes and fishing groups and other conservation groups. That was a very much a coalition effort on the San Joaquin River. And that's certainly true in our work in the Delta watershed as a whole. It is an uphill battle because, as a colleague of mine likes to joke, the, the water users feel like they stole the water fair and square, and so they don't want to give it back up. Something I didn't mention is that the Delta is, you know, it's not just the switchyard of these two massive water supply systems, but it's also an estuary where you have salt water from the ocean meeting fresh water flowing down the rivers. And as you divert more fresh water, the salt water will continue to creep further east, moving inland. And as you have more water flowing out, or known as delta outflow, you push that salt water further to the west towards the ocean. And so estuaries are typically very productive places. 
And even though 50% of the water was left in the Bay Delta watershed this year, the vast majority of that was simply to maintain water quality for farms and cities in the Delta, as well as the export projects. And it provided incidental benefits for fish and wildlife, but it was not like this was only for fish and wildlife. Just to follow up, if the water rights are overallocated, but we can't necessarily revoke them, like what's the solution? You know, when we look at the longer term solutions to this problem, well, first you have to acknowledge that climate change is making these problems much more severe. So, you know, we're seeing more frequent droughts, more severe droughts. We're seeing less of the water that falls as rain and snow actually becoming runoff in the rivers because the ground is so dry, it's just absorbing it. And so instead of running off the land into the water, it just gets absorbed and there's less water flowing in the river. It's also increasing air temperatures, which both increases water temperatures, for which is bad news for salmon, but it also increases the demand for water because crops are now thirstier with higher evapotranspiration with higher air temperatures. As though our existing challenges weren't hard enough, it's becoming much harder with climate change. We see an essential part of any solution is enforcing the state policy that was enacted in 2009 as part of the Delta Reform Act, which states that Delta policy, the state's policy is to reduce reliance on the Delta and to reduce reliance on water diversions from the Delta through investments in local and regional water supply projects, including water recycling, stormwater capture, and water use efficiency. NRDC, during the last drought, I believe in 2014, we did a report with the Pacific Institute that looked at the potential water supply available from improving water use efficiency or water conservation, from stormwater capture, and from water recycling. And there's a huge untapped potential of millions of acre feet of new water supplies available from these tools. And so when we look at the situation in the Bay Delta watershed, recognizing that much of the state from Southern California through Sacramento depends on water diversions from the Delta in part, a key part of any solution is to reduce reliance by making these regions more independent of the Delta. The same is true with respect to improving water use efficiency. In cities that we're still, even with improvements over the last decade, we've seen per capita water use drop as people become more cognizant of water supply shortages and droughts and the need to use water more efficiently and realize that you can cut water use without really changing your lifestyle. We've also seen the same is true on farms, you know, at least as of 2010, which is the last data available from the state. 50% of the state's farms and irrigated agriculture still used inefficient flood irrigation. So they weren't using drip or sprinklers or something more efficient. They're just flooding the field. And in a really wet year, that's fine. You know, you have, you are doing some groundwater recharge, but in a really dry year, there isn't enough water for that. So improving water use efficiency, getting folks into pressurized systems where you can use drip and provide the water that the crops need and not a lot of excessive water provides significant benefits. But all of these things have to be paired with the state water board and the state imposing effective regulations to protect the health of the Delta and its salmon runs and other native fish and wildlife. And that's a piece where the state has really struggled. NRDC filed litigation in 2004 under the Endangered Species Act against the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project because we saw that the state water board was failing to protect our native fish and wildlife. And as a result, we needed to go use the emergency powers of the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act is effectively an emergency room. It's a triage. When you get to that point, your existing regulatory mechanisms have failed. And that's what we saw in the state of California. State law is supposed to require much stronger protections than the Federal Endangered Species Act. But again, they've been recognized more in the breach than they have been observed. And so the State Water Board began its process of updating the standards under state law for how much water can be diverted from this watershed right around the time that I started work at NRDC in 2008. And they haven't completed that process. They completed a phase of it in 2018, requiring more flow on the Tuolumne and Merced rivers 
and about the same amount of water on the Stanislaus River as before. They required that about 40% of the unimpaired flow, which is the amount of water that would flow through the river absent dams and diversions, remain in the river during that February through June period. But we're still waiting for the board to set new standards for how much water has to flow through the Delta and for flows on the Sacramento River and for export limits by the state and federal water projects. And so because the board has frankly failed to do its job, the courts have had to step in and we've had a lot of litigation under the Endangered Species Act. And all that litigation is only necessary because the state did not take care of its own business under state law. And so the two-pronged approach is to make investments in reducing reliance on the Delta and become more self-sufficient and to be ready to divert less water from the Delta so that we can protect fish and wildlife. And then to have the state set new standards to protect fish and wildlife that are adequately protective instead of having to continue to go to federal court to protect species under the Endangered Species Act. I would be interested if you can just give us an idea of how much money is spent to lobby against these protections that you're talking about. It's really interesting. The people in irrigation districts who have water rights and water contracts are willing to spend heavily to protect their privilege. There's no question about it. I'm not aware of any sort of statewide estimates, but I can share two anecdotes that I think help give you some idea of the magnitude of what advocates for fish and wildlife and for tribes and for fishing groups are facing, because it is really an unequal playing field. The first is that the Westlands Water District around 2011 or 2012 hired David Bernhardt, an attorney, to be their lobbyist and their litigator when they were challenging Endangered Species Act protections for salmon. Mr. Bernhardt represented Westlands in litigation. We were actually also in that litigation. We were defending the biological opinions that had been adopted by the Bush administration in 2008 and the Obama administration in 2009. A biological opinion is a permit under the Endangered Species Act that allows a federal project, such as the storage and diversion of water by the Central Valley Project, to harm or kill specific numbers of salmon or other endangered species. We're defending them against the state of California that was suing to overturn them, the Westlands Water District, virtually every single water contractor was suing to overturn them with the state. And we had a one week long hearing in Fresno for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction that the water users were seeking. To give you a sense of the the army of lawyers involved, at one point we had five attorneys between NRDC and Earth Justice who were intervening to defend the federal government. The federal government had two or three attorneys and all the plaintiffs, the state of California, all these water districts that were suing to overturn these protections that were ultimately upheld by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, they had somewhere between 20 to 25 attorneys in the courtroom. They brought in some attorney who I believe was making over $1,000 an hour to do one cross-examination. And they were probably spending close to a quarter million dollars or more a day collectively on this trial, all to try to overturn these protections because they saw that the value of the water that they could get if these protections were eliminated was worth this investment of millions of dollars. Similarly, the Westlands Water District, they had hired David Bernhardt and they paid him about $1.3 million over several years not just in addition to his expenses as a lawyer, I think they also paid him as a lobbyist to lobby Congress to overturn those protections. Congress largely rejected his efforts, so he lost in court and he lost in Congress. And then when Trump won, he was named as the deputy secretary of the Interior Department and ultimately became the secretary of the Interior. And according to reporting by the New York Times and others, He was very actively involved in the effort to overturn these protections by the Trump administration administratively. So that investment, even though they didn't win in court and they didn't win in Congress, they ultimately were successful when the Trump administration adopted new biological opinions in 2020 
which the state of California and we are now suing to overturn, and the Biden administration has agreed to begin the process of unwinding those protections. But for several years, it meant that they were able to divert more water and cause more devastation to our native fish and wildlife. And when you look, virtually all the water districts have lobbyists in D.C., too many of whom are lobbying against protections for the environment and for the Bay Delta and for salmon. And facing off against them is a small group of people from NRDC, tribes, fishing groups, other conservation groups trying to push back on that. But we are outnumbered and outfunded at every turn. And it's kind of a miracle that our fish and wildlife are even hanging on today against those odds. But it is just a testament to truly how amazing salmon and these species are. They have evolved for tens of thousands of years. Like the tribes, they've been here since time immemorial, and they've seen everything we've thrown at them. Rivers being dewatered, dams, flood control projects, conversion of riparian lands into riprap and flood control structures and levees. And despite all this, despite climate change, you get a good water year and suddenly the salmon are back. And these really are just amazing species that if we give them a chance, they will come back. The question is whether we're really willing to give them a chance. Is there anything else you'd like to say? And also, if you could tell us how people can get involved and learn more about your work. I do have a blog on NRDC where I try to provide more information. We have partnerships with a lot of different groups because it really does take all of us working together to push back on this onslaught from particularly irrigated ag, but also a lot of these big corporations. Without individuals speaking at public meetings, writing letters to their members of Congress, to their water board, getting involved, we may watch our salmon slowly disappear off the landscape. And that's something that I hope folks will join with us in helping to prevent. Thanks so much, Doug, for all the information and hard work that you all do. I really appreciate your time. That was Doug Obiji from NRDC. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bob, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.